We're going to be looking today at Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, going down through verse 22 in our study together, as we think about the sovereignty of Jesus. One of the things I believe that makes the book of Colossians a very special book is the fact that it exalts Jesus in so many ways. You know, the book of Ephesians exalts the church of Christ. The book of Colossians exalts the Christ. And the two go hand in hand, don't they? And so in our study today, I want you to look with me at Colossians chapter 1. There are some things that I want to maybe call attention to as we think about the sovereignty, majesty, splendor of Jesus. Because ultimately, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one by whom all things exist and for whom all things exist. And our goal is to live to glorify Him and to glorify the Father. So as we think about Colossians chapter 1, I want to begin by saying that Jesus is the one who reveals the Father to the human family. Listen to what Paul said beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Let me pause there if I can. The first thought that I want to share with you today, the revelation about Jesus. What we think about Jesus is extremely important, isn't it? And the Bible here, in a very emphatic way, underscores some things about Jesus. Number one, His pre-incarnate state. We talk about the pre-existent Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. Well, Paul said He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And so I go back to John chapter 1. And you remember in John chapter 1, John, the apostle, said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now back in the book of Micah, many, many years ago, Micah the prophet pinpointed the birthplace of the coming of the Messiah. He identified that as Bethlehem, didn't he, in Judea. But in Micah chapter 5, the prophet said, whose goings forth are from of old, even from everlasting or literally from the days of eternity. So to understand that we're talking about the eternal word, the fact that Jesus, the Son, as we know him, is that eternal word who has always existed. Now, Paul said he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. One writer says that the word firstborn is a Jewish technical term that means uncreated, really suggesting his priority to and preeminence over creation. That's the one we're talking about. Now, you think about the pre-incarnate Christ, but then there is the incarnate Christ, the fact that God became flesh. You remember the psalmist in Psalm 40 many years ago 
in pointing to the coming of the Christ, said of Jesus, a body you have prepared for me. Well, where was that body prepared? In the womb of Mary, wasn't it? But I mentioned a moment ago, John chapter 1, when John talked about the eternal Word. Down in verse 14, he said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he said, We beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, Paul in Colossians chapter 2, writing about the Christ, the fact that He is the incarnate Christ, in other words, God in human flesh. Paul said, in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's the one we're talking about. And so you think about the revelation about Jesus. Well, who was Jesus? Who is Jesus? We can talk about the pre-incarnate Christ, the incarnate Christ, and the idea that it really doesn't matter what we think about Jesus or about His identity. Listen, it does matter, doesn't it? You remember in Matthew 16 when Jesus asked the question, a penetrating question, who do men say that I the Son of Man am? They gave a variety of answers, but Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. In John chapter 6, when Jesus identified himself as the bread of life, you recall John said many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Jesus then turned to the twelve and asked them, will you also go away? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life eternal. Then he said, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So the revelation about Jesus, the very Son of God, the eternal Word. There's a second thought here. First, we talk about the revelation about Jesus, but then the revelation by Jesus. One other thought very quickly. If you drop down, look at verse 17. You remember Paul said, He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. I would underscore that phrase, He is before all things, because that suggests His priority too. He was antecedent to creation, wasn't it? Wasn't that the case? Isn't that the case? Again, underscoring His eternal nature. But nonetheless, Jesus, God in the flesh, was the visible God who made known the invisible God to the human family. For example, you remember in John chapter 14, Jesus said in about verse 9, If you have seen the Father, or rather if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Paul in Colossians chapter 1, when he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the idea is He is the perfect likeness. He is the perfect representation of the Father, isn't He? In Hebrews chapter 1, the writer said He is the express image of His person. So when Jesus said in John chapter 14, look, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because He came to reveal the Father to the human family, didn't He? So we talk about Jesus Christ, 
the one who reveals the Father to the human family. But then secondly, Jesus reigns over the human family. Paul's going to make that abundantly clear. Now, listen to him, if you will, as we think about Jesus, who was the creator over the physical realm. Pick up in verse 16. For by him all things were created, that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Paul here simply underscoring the fact that Jesus was the agent by which the world was made. Do you remember the psalmist back in Psalm 33 said, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. John chapter 1. When John introduces us to the eternal word, in verse 3 he said, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You mean to tell me that Jesus was and is the creator of all things? That's exactly right. The things that we can see with a visible eye, the things that we cannot see with a visible eye. For example, the air we breathe. We don't have the ability to see gravity. We see the effects of gravity, but we don't see it. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the creator of the universe, not just the creator. But he is the sustainer of the universe, isn't he? In other words, everything is held in check. The universe that we live in, we talk about a universe of law and order. There's a sense of symmetry that exists in the world in which we live. Well, how's all that happen? How's all that, how's all that operate? Do you remember the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 1? When the writer said he upholds all things by the word of his power, the very God who said, let there be light, is the one who upholds all things by, with the word of his power, doesn't he? Listen again to what Paul says, Colossians chapter 1. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. There it is, right there. The law and order that governs the universe that we live in today. Is because of Jesus, the Word. It helps to understand something about the Lord. Because as we think about His sovereignty and majesty and splendor, to understand that Jesus, as deity, had the ability, the power, to create the physical realm. But not only was Jesus present in the creation of the physical realm, but Paul says he created the spiritual realm as well, didn't he? How do I know that? Well, listen to him in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So, first and foremost to understand that Jesus was the originator of the church. That's what Paul is saying here. He's the head of the body, the church. But listen to him. 
which is the beginning. The word beginning there is very important. Because really what it means is that Jesus was the active cause, the source from which the church came into being. Jesus built the church, didn't he? Promised to build the church. Remember, I mentioned a moment ago, Matthew 16, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? When Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus then said to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. Now listen to him in verse 18. And I also say unto you, that you're Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Either Jesus built his church or he didn't. Either he had the ability to bring it into existence or he didn't. Now, the church is in accordance with the eternal plan of God. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 3, 9 through 11. It exists because God in heaven decreed that the church would come into being. So, Paul here is saying, look, when we talk about the church, we need to understand that Jesus was the one who brought it into existence. He promised to build it. And by the way, he bought the church with his blood, didn't he? Acts chapter 20, verse 28, when Paul said, take heed to yourselves, to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to feed the church of God, listen to him, which he purchased with his own blood. So Paul here is saying to us, the church exists by divine right. Jesus was the originator of the church. He is the cause of the church, the source from which it came into being. But then there's a second thought. Not only was he the originator of the church, but Paul said he is over the church. Listen to him again. He is the head of the body of the church. According to the Apostle Paul, according to Scripture, the Bible makes it abundantly clear there is just one body and there's just one head. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 4. There's one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's above all, through all, and in you all. Do you remember Paul in Ephesians 1? When he said he put all things in subjection under his feet, made him to be head over all things to the, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is by divine right the head of the church. And Paul is making that abundantly clear. He's saying, look, not only is he the one who originated the church, he's over the church. Your body, my body, takes direction from what? from my head. Our brain is sending out instructions, right? So you think about the body of Christ is subject to the headship of Christ, isn't it? So as members of the body of Christ, as members of the church, we take our direction from the Lord. We don't have to have anybody on earth governing and regulating the affairs of the church. Why? Because Jesus in heaven has, less, has left us His last will and testament. It's called the New Testament. Paul identifies it as the law of Christ in Galatians 6 verse 2. The last will and testament regulates the conduct or behavior of the church. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 
Paul said, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you might know how to conduct or behave yourself in the house of God. You remember in Ephesians 3, Paul said that he received revelation from God. He took that revelation and wrote it down in a few words. He said, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. You mean to tell me as a Christian, I can take what I read in Scripture, that I can analyze it, come to an understanding of it, and then make application? Well, of course. Didn't Paul say in Ephesians chapter 5, be not unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is? It's not a matter of can we understand. The question is, do we want to understand? Jesus said, you shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. So not only did he originate the church, he is over the church. There's a third thought I want to share with you today. Not only does Jesus reveal the Father to the human family, not only does he reign over the human family, but Jesus is the Redeemer of the human family. Listen now to Paul as he continues his thought process. Down in verse 19, Paul is going to now talk about the price of our redemption. And when we talk about the price of redemption, the fact that we have been redeemed, the songs that we sang this morning reminding us of how we've been redeemed, Have you ever thought about the cost, the cost factor of your redemption, personally speaking? Two things. Number one, it cost Jesus his blood, didn't it? Number two, it cost Jesus his body. Listen to him, verse 19. It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Now look at verse 20. And by Him to reconcile all things to Himself. By Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. When man sinned in the Garden of Eden, what happened? Man became separated from his Creator, didn't he? That's why God introduced and began unveiling the promised seed of Genesis 3, verse 15. Jesus, however, came to do what? to restore harmony between heaven and earth, didn't he? In other words, to bridge the gap. Jesus stood between God and man. He is the one who reconciles fallen man, isn't he? Upon what basis? On the basis of his blood. Listen to him. By him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. How important is the blood of Jesus? The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 9, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Paul said in Ephesians 1, 7, in Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Listen to John, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Unto Him who loved us and washed us from our sins. By what? By His own blood. Paul said He has made peace through the blood of His Christ, through the blood of His cross. So you go to Romans chapter 5. And Paul is writing to saints in Rome, people that have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And he said in verse 1 of chapter 5, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? How was that peace possible? The peace was made possible 
by the blood of Jesus. In Ephesians 2, when Paul said, those who are outside a covenant relationship are without hope and without God in this world. In verse 13, he said, But now in Christ Jesus, you that once were far off are made near, brought nigh by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, For He is our peace. Jesus is the one who has made peace. We have peace with God, and we enjoy the peace of God, don't we? As Paul would say in Philippians chapter 4. So, the price of our redemption, it cost Jesus His blood. Not just His blood, but His body. Note, if you would, the continuation. Paul said, And you who once were alienated, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He is reconciled in the body of His flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable in His sight. Now, do you remember Peter when he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2? Talked about how Jesus has left us an example that we should follow in His steps. And Peter said, Who did no sin, neither was guile or deceit found in His mouth. Who when He was reviled, reviled not again. When He suffered, threatened not, but committed Himself unto Him who judges righteously. And then he said, Who bore our sins, where? In his own body, that we being dead unto sin might live unto righteousness. When Jesus went to the cross, sometimes we talk about the vicarious suffering and death of the Christ. Peter said, look, he bore our sins in his own body that we being dead unto sin might live unto righteousness. He said, for by His stripes we are healed. Taking us all the way back to Isaiah 53. When Isaiah foretold of the coming of the Messiah. And he talked about how He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes we are healed. The price of our redemption was not cheap. And so you think about what it cost not just God, but the Son. No wonder Paul said, God spared not His own Son, but freely gave Him up for us all. Now, there's a second thought here. We talk about the price of our redemption, but then also Paul alludes to the place of our redemption. Back up now and look at verse 12. In verse 12, Paul writes, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He's delivered us from the power of darkness, translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Now listen to him in verse 14. In whom, or in Him, we have redemption through His blood. <coughs> Pardon me. First, Paul specifies by way of the place of redemption. It's Christ, isn't it? It's in Christ. Listen to him again, verse 14. In whom, in him we have redemption. Didn't Paul say in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, that salvation is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory? The only way that we can get into Christ is to be baptized into Christ. And that baptism is preceded by 
faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance of sins, we confess the good name of Christ, and then we're immersed so that all of our sins can be washed away. And Paul's saying that salvation is in Christ. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul said, You're all sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He said that those who are in Christ, spiritually speaking, are on the same plane, right? He said, where there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. So salvation is in Christ, but then Paul says it's not just in Christ. Listen to him. It's in the church of Christ. Back up again, look at verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. What's the kingdom? Same institution spoken of in verse 18, isn't it? When Paul said He's the head of the body, the church, which is the beginning, Paul is saying, look, when you obeyed the gospel of Christ, when you got into Christ, not only were you baptized into Christ, you were baptized into the church of Christ. How do I know that? Well, number one, that's what Paul said. But number two, Peter on Pentecost Day, when he preached to repent and be baptized in the name of Christ in verse 38, as recorded by Luke, Verse 41, the Bible says those who gladly received His word were baptized. Verse 47 says the Lord added to the church daily, listen to Him, those who were saved. Where then are the saved? In the church. Remember Paul in Ephesians 5 verse 23? The Bible says He's the Savior of the body. What's the body? It's the church, Colossians 1.18. Now listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 13. By one Spirit were you all baptized into what? Into one body. That means when people are baptized into Christ, they're also baptized into the church of Christ. We're talking about the sovereignty of Jesus. The fact that He is the one who has revealed the Father to the human family. He is the one who reigns over the human family, and He is the one who has redeemed the human family. So here's my question to you. Have you been redeemed by the blood of Jesus? Interesting thought. If you haven't complied with the conditions of pardon set forth in Scripture, you're not among the redeemed, saved or cleansed. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, could I plead with you to become a child of God? Thurston and I spoke in a nationwide gospel meeting. Brother Don spoken several times over the course of the last few months, as have I. It has been hosted by a great brother in Houston, Texas. And they've had a number of baptisms, a number of restorations. The brother's name is Tommy Brooks. And in the course of the lesson Thursday night, I was reminded of an incident that occurred many years ago when I was preaching. 
It was this time of the year. I never will forget, I was sitting down talking with a young lady and her father. The young lady had just been baptized a few months earlier. She had brought her father in to talk about studying the Bible. During the course of our conversation, he said, you know, I think maybe after the first of the year, we can sit down and study the Bible. His daughter pressed him on that occasion. And I'm grateful she did. You know, the Bible talks about, for example, in Acts chapter 2, with many other words did Peter testify and exhort. Sometimes we need to encourage and persuade people. So she encouraged her father to obey the gospel, not wait. Let me tell you what. Had he waited until after the first of the year, he would have been lost. I conducted his funeral service prior to the end of the year. That's why it's so important to obey the gospel. You know, Paul said today is the day of salvation. Thursday night, we baptized Cooper into Christ. Jared and I had the opportunity to sit down and talk to him. He obeyed the gospel. He's in Christ. Jared talked about, you know, if you're not going to be baptized tonight, you better be very careful when you're out in the car. Are you a Christian? This might be the last gospel sermon you ever hear. I don't know. If you're here tonight, or rather, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I encourage you. Do what they did on Pentecost Day. Repent. Be baptized. Let God put you in the church. If you're here today and you're not faithful, why not get your life right today? Don't wait. Start the new year fresh. John said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Won't you come as we stand and sing?